Well, good morning. Um, we turn our attention to God's Word. And if you're visiting us this morning, we've been through a pretty extensive series through an Old Testament book called First Samuel, looking at the story of David. And we continue our series in First Samuel today. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it to First Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. If you need one, we'll give one to you. And also the scripture text will be uh, up on the screen as we walk through the passage together. But we've been looking at the stories of King David, and King David has been in the wilderness. And we're in a series of three, there's three chapters in the, in the scriptures that really go together where David is in the wilderness and he's being tested. He's being tested because God is forming the character that he needs to be king. And one of the primary things apparently he needs to be king and to lead others is he needs to be able to show mercy and show restraint. And so he has three tests back to back, that are challenging him in this area. Will he show mercy and restraint? Last week that we saw that he was caught in the cave with Saul, the Lord's anointed and his enemy, and he passed the test. This week, we see him not interacting with a famous fool, but the -the run-of-the-mill fool. Everyone deals with fools. Will David show the same mercy and restraint to a nobody fool that he showed to a famous fool? It's good for us to look at because we all deal with difficult people. We all have fools Outside, and we all have a little inner fool inside of us as well that messes with other people. We all need instruction on how to deal with the fools in our life and the foolishness in our hearts. Do we show mercy and restraint around harsh and badly behaved people? Or do we let them bring us down to their level? The fools we meet online, the fools we see in the nightly news, do we rise above their foolishness or do we contribute to the mess? David is tested and we see this time he almost fails. He becomes dangerously close to becoming Saul 2.0. Last week, if you remember, Saul was the one who needed to be shocked into repentance by mercy and kindness. Do you remember that? This week, we'll see that David needs that same medical treatment in his heart. But who will be David's savior? And oh my goodness, guys. It's one of the most beautiful characters in all of Scripture. 
David's Savior, Abigail. I can't wait for you to meet her. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as we open your book together, I pray that you would be present with us and that you would attend to the foolishness in our hearts, that you would bring to mind the fools that mess with us in our lives. And in the process of going through this, I pray that we would, through Abigail, see a beauty that would melt our hearts and lead us in the way of wisdom. And that you would cultivate mercy and restraint in our inner being. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Let's just start um, in verse 2 of our passage. 1 Samuel chapter 25. David is in the wilderness. He just... Uh, he has just let Saul go, but he and his men are still doing the wilderness thing. Here we go. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. It's a lot of goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So here we are introduced to our two main characters outside of David. One of my favorite Old Testament characters, Abigail. And Abigail is the Hebrew word for beauty. Abigail is Abigail. Beautiful is beautiful. And she's married to a man named Nabal. Nabal is the Hebrew word for fool. And so his parents were cruel. <laughs> oh, what a terrible name for a child. I don't know, maybe, maybe this was his nickname. But you have beautiful, beautiful, and foolish. And we'll see that they lived up to their namesakes. First, there was the fool Nabal, and he was rich. He owned cattle and sheep, and we're told that throughout the text that he took pride in both. Uh, We'll learn by the end of the chapter that he kept his liquor cabinet full, his date life hot, and he motored around in his stretch limo, donkey limo, or whatever it was back in the day. Uh, And the scriptures tell us throughout this text that he was very ill-natured. He was a walking grump and scrooge. He learned people skills in the local zoo. Nabal was a fool. And he never met 
a person that he couldn't offend. He was never in a relationship that he couldn't spoil. Ever met a fool? Nabal's world revolved around one person, Nabal. And although rich, we'll see that he'd never give thought to others. And so let's keep reading our text in verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. And peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time. They were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So this is what's happening. David is in the wilderness, and so are many of Nabal's shepherds who are shepherding throughout the wilderness area of Paran. And to be a shepherd in the wilderness, that was a very dangerous job. And so they looked to others to protect them. And David had taken up, David and his men had taken it upon himself to protect these shepherds from robbers. He was doing good work in the wilderness, guarding the farmers and the shepherds. And then when it came time to shear the sheep, which in Israel is party time, excellent, a time to roast some lamb and pour some wine and bake some bread and to enjoy the fruits of one's labors. At, at festival time, David sends men to Nabal and says, Hey, buddy, I've scratched your back. How about you scratch mine? I'm not asking for much, just fair payment for a job well done. And for what they've done, they rightly deserve a bit of the bounty. And so David sends these ten men with cordial greetings and requests, respectful greetings. And the one thing I want to point out is in verse 6, three times in that verse, David uses the word peace, which Joe tells us in the Hebrew is shalom. So three times he says shalom, shalom. Shalom, which is this word that basically means mutual flourishing. And so he's saying, I helped you. Now you help me. What we're doing is we're creating this world of bounty and shalom together. It's a beautiful, reasonable, and honorable request. How does Nabal, the fool, respond? He lives up to his name. Verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants. I wish I had a Nabal voice, but I haven't thought about it beforehand, so I'm not going to make one up now. Who is, no, I'm not going to do it. Who is, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come who I don't know where from? Now, that was shade thrown on David right there if you didn't catch it. And he's not saying, I don't know who David is. He's just mocking David. He's saying, David is nobody. He's a son of Jesse. Jesse is a nobody. In fact, this is just a bunch of sinners and misfits and losers, servants and slaves who have broken away from their masters. There's rebels all over the land. I don't owe you anything. And so he calls David a no-count, runaway slave. He calls his men a bunch of nobodies who have no right to my bread, my water, and my meat. So notice the threefold reputation. David said, shalom, shalom, shalom. And Nabal says, mine, mine, mine. And how does David respond to the slight? Verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Did you hear the threefold repetition again? From peace, 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 to mine, mine, mine. And now, David, it's no longer peace, peace, peace. It's sword, sword, sword. And we get a sense of how mad David was a little later in the text. I'm going to read it now. I'm going to jump forward a little bit. This is verses 21 through 22. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if this morning I leave so much as one male to all who belongs to him. David's going to go take out not only Nabal, he's going to take out his whole family. Twice in that text, David uses terminology that I would consider to be vulgar. It's footnoted in some of your Bibles, but even the footnotes tend to be a little mild. But this is a family environment, so I'm not going to tell you what the vulgar terminology is. Only to say that Nabal was vulgar, and David is coming down to his character. He's letting Nabal's vulgarity make him vulgar himself. So he's going to go kill a whole bunch of people. Now let's just consider what's at stake for David. David is called to be the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. And as a king, he's going to be surrounded by fools. He's going to be surrounded by people taking pot shots at him. Time and time again, people calling him a nobody. 
people trying to offend him. If he responds like this, every time he's offended, just kills a city, destroys a family, who will he be like? Saul and just about every other human king. (laughs) If you have no tolerance for fools, how can you serve God? If you can't absorb offense, how can you be a leader? If you can't be generous with your enemies, you can't be a leader of others. He lost his temper. He lost his sense of who he was as God's anointed. David was on the verge of becoming another Saul out to get rid of anyone who would threaten his status. Think about what Nabal did. It was just a verbal offense. It wasn't even physically threatening. And David goes nuclear. On Have you ever gone nuclear on a verbal offense? How could David be the man he was called to be without showing restraint? And so he's very dangerous. He's, he's about to fail the test. Imagine the scene in your mind. 400 men in a rage, taking off after Nabal. Noses flared, lips curled. David and his thir- uh, troops thundering down on Nabal and his family. The scoundrel who obliviously is drinking beer and eating barbecue with his buddies back home. While the road rumbles and David grumbles, David and his army heading towards destruction. The stakes are high. Should David succeed, it's the end of Nabal and Nabal's name. It's also the end of David. Because if David follows through, what kind of king would he be? David needs a savior. And he gets one in Abigail. What happens next is amazing. I'm going to summarize verses 14 through 17. One of Nabal's men who heard his master so offend David runs and gets Abigail. And says, your husband has done it again. But this time he's offended David. And I can't imagine that this will be good This could be the end of all of us. And Abigail, the beautiful and discerning wife of Nabal, springs into action. Verses 18 through 22. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins. I don't even know what clusters of raisins look like. And two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her, young men, go before me, before uh, behold, I come after you. And she rode on the donkey, and came down under the cover of the mountain. And behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. So, so Abigail loads a feast 
worthy of a king onto donkeys to bring to David. She's coming with the gifts of Eden, a bounty, a feast of grace, everything that's owed to David for his servants and more. And she's trying to cut him off before there's this great slaughter. But you have to see it in your mind's eyes. She's racing to intercept 400 fierce men armed with swords, racing down a mountain, and there is one single woman on a donkey armed with bread and grace. Well, the 400 men could have killed her. She's risking her life, but they rein in their rides and they gape at the food and they gawk. This is the final barrier between them and their slaughter. They don't know what to do with what they see. And Abigail gets off her donkey, lays down in front of these men, and issues a plea worthy of a paragraph of Scripture. It is the longest speech by a woman given in the Old Testament. And I'm going to give it all the time that it deserves. Let me read it to you. Starting in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears. And hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you've sent. Now then, my Lord, as God lives and as your soul lives, Because God has restrained you from blood guilt and your saving with your own hands. Now then let your, what she's saying there is she's heard about Saul. He was merciful to Saul. Now she's saying let your enemies, those who seek to uh, to do evil, be to my Lord as fools. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. She's getting him to rise above it. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. She's reminding him of how good the Lord has been to him. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. Or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember 
your servant. There's a lot here. Let me highlight some of it for you. Notice that she doesn't defend Nabal, which means that when you're married to a foolish man, you don't need to defend him, and you can defy him. She defies Nabal here. She agrees that he is a scoundrel, and she begs not for justice, but for forgiveness. Accepting the blame for what he's done when she deserves none of it. The first thing she does is she acts as an intercessor. The first words out of her mouth are mine in the Hebrew. And unlike her husband who said, my grain, my sheep, my festival, what she's saying is it's my guilt. Let it be on me. She asked to assume the guilt, though she herself has done nothing. And then she brings this offering of grace that she hopes will atone for the actions of Nabal. She says, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to these young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. So she's acting as an intercessor. She's bringing this abundant gift of grace to be able to atone for the offense. And then she just showers David with biblical truth, acting like a prophet. In verse 26, she says, Since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself... What she's saying there is, remember the incident in the cave with Saul in the previous chapter? Remember who you are. Remember what you've learned. Remember the beauty of mercy and restraint. In verse 28, she speaks prophetically saying that evil will not define David's leadership, but that God has better things in plans for him. And she's finding a delicate way to say, David, you're about to make an evil, an evil move, a bad mistake. And this is not what God has called you to do. Remember who you are. And then in verse 29, she says, remember what God has done for you. There's that beautiful line about your life being bound in the bundle of the living in the care of our God. I don't even know what that means. Other than I think about just being like when it's winter and you just bundle up and you feel safe and warm. She's saying that's what God's care has been like for you in the wilderness. You haven't had to fight your own battles. God's been fighting them for you and he's wrapped you up in his care and his provision and his love. Really, what are these slights, in other words, in comparison to God's love and grace to you? And he says, the li- she says, the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. David and slings. What, is, what would that remind David of? He's used a sling in the past. She's, she's reminding him of the great ways in which God has showed up for him in the past. And it's really taken care of his enemies. How could he not think about his interactions with Goliath in this moment and how God had been so faithful? She's saying, remember the promises that God has made to you. He's, 
He's promised to build you a sure house. Remember the love and care and provision that he has for you. Remember what you've learned from following him. Remember how faithful he's been in the past. And remember finally that there's consequences for your actions. Verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince of Israel... My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. One, she's saying, don't work salvation for yourself, which is the big lesson that David's been learning his whole life. You don't work salvation for yourself. You receive it as a gift. But she's saying, if you do this thing, you will be carrying the dead weight of remorse your whole life. How will you be able to enjoy the destination, being king of Israel, if this is the way that you got there? In other words, what she's saying is, David, you're better than this. And she's reminding David of God, filling his heart with God, with God's promises, God's work, God's covenant, and God's words. She's saying, David, your life is so tangled up in God's love and promise and provision. You are defined by those things, not the foolish insults of Nabal. So she reminds him of what God has done for him. Beautiful words. Beautiful actions. And how does David respond? He melts like ice in July sun. Verse 32. And David said to Abigail, listen for the threefold repetition now. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working my salvation with my own hand. Do you hear it? So first it was shalom, shalom, shalom. And then it was mine, mine, mine. And then sword, sword, sword. And now after Abigail, what is it? Blessed, blessed, blessed. Verse 34. David continues. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you have hurried to come to meet me truly this morning, there would have not been left to Nabal as much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go in shalom. Oh, we're back at shalom to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. His heart melts. Through mercy. Nabal was saved from David, not from his ultimate fate with God. And David was saved through the acts of Abigail. The story doesn't conclude there. I'll let you read the end for yourself. Here's the cliff notes Abigail goes home, and Nabal is drunk. He's engaged in an orgy, he's, he's being a fool. And uh, Abigail waits till he sobers up to tell him what had happened the day prior and the fate 
that he avoided because of her character, wisdom. And uh, in hearing what had happened, Nabal's heart shrivels. And he has a heart attack or something because the Lord, he dies in 10 days. And it says that the Lord kills him. Uh, God ultimately dealt with the fool. But the point isn't Nabal's fate. That's not the point of the story. There's another takeaway here. What do we learn from David, Abigail, and the fool? Which one of us has not acted out of our flesh? We've been offended. There's been a slight. We've been embarrassed. And we go nuclear. We write the email. It's real mean. We have the gossip in our mouth. We're ready to tweet the tweet or whatever you do. Um, Will we show restraint? David is just continuing a pattern that's happened throughout human history. It's just another day on planet earth. A man gets confronted by a fool, insulted, and goes off. But then he's confronted by beauty. And not the beauty of an amazing landscape or a mountain range or a sunset. Not beauty that is as shallow as a surface level appearance. But it's the beauty of grace and self-sacrifice. The beauty of words of promise of the Lord and reminders of who he is in him. He is stopped in his tracks by Abigail, melted by mercy, and reminded of who he is. The accelerating, violent momentum of the story is stopped and reversed by Abigail. Marginal Abigail. And Abigail is on the margin because she's a woman in a man-dominated world. She's marginal because she's weaponless in a sword-rattling world. And she's marginal because she's wise in a foolish world. But David is in the school of the wilderness. And Abigail is giving him a master class in wisdom, mercy, and restraint. In many ways, what she's doing is she's embodying the wisdom of the Proverbs. So here's a couple Proverbs, and just think about them in the context of our story and in the context of Abigail. This is Proverbs 12, 16. It says, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. A fool, a nabal, gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise person quietly holds it back. A gentle response diffuses anger, but a sharp tongue kindles temper fire. David is in the wilderness, and he's learning wisdom from Abigail. The meekness of Abigail, the gentleness and moral beauty that reverses a river of anger, 
reminding us that humility has true power. Apologies can disarm. Contrition can diffuse rage. Olive branches do more than battle axes. Soft speech can break bones. Abigail teaching David what it means to be king. Giving a master class in wisdom. And her greatest lesson, of course, is to take our eyes off of her beauty and they set them on another person's beauty. Because she lifts our eyes above the rural trail of the wilderness in Paran and lifts it to the Jerusalem cross. Abigail never knew Jesus. She lived a thousand years before his sacrifice. But her story in her heart prefigures his character and grace. Abigail rides on a donkey to meet the wrath of men. A donkey weighed down with the abundance of a feast. She places herself between David and Nabal as Jesus places himself between God and us. Abigail volunteers to be punished for Nabal's sins. And Jesus allowed heaven to punish him for yours and mine. Abigail turned away the anger of David and Christ shields you and me from God's anger. David's heart was melted by Abigail's mercy. How much more should our hearts be melted by the mercy and grace of Jesus. Like David's rage-filled armor, I imagine my sin and my foolishness. All of humanity's sin, our anger, wrath, lust, rage, reactivity, and hate, storming down a mountain to self-destruction. And there you have a single man, a God-man, who had the power To take us out, but instead rides out, not on a war horse, but a donkey, takes on flesh, comes in humiliating form, and lays down in front of us and says, I'll take the blame. You take the blessing. I'll take the rage. You take forgiveness. I'll take the sword. You take the blessing. We are in a season where we are surrounded by beautiful things. But there are often beautiful things that just keep us in the shallow end of the pool. What makes us wise is when we take time in this season to look at true beauty, the cross, the forgiveness of Jesus, who we are in him. Each of us is like bundled up in his love. All of our greatest enemies have been defeated. And there is Jesus standing between our destruction and us, saving us yet again.
Will we let it, let us become wise? Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story, for this tale in the Old Testament, for the moral beauty and wisdom of Abigail, and most of all, how she points us to our Savior, Jesus. Each one of us has rage in our hearts. Each one of us is vexed by fools. And the fools in this world who say that there is no God are trying to bring us down to their level. But we will never be able to serve you in the ways that we should if we're always reacting to every fool in the world. We may not be called to be king of Israel, but we're called to represent you in this world, which means we need to absorb offense. We need to learn the way of mercy and forgiveness. We need to cultivate in our hearts moral beauty that points people beyond the walls of this world to the love of a Savior who cares so deeply for us. And so would you help us in this season Every time we see something beautiful, a light, a candle, a tree, would you let it point us to true beauty? Take our minds to the deeper realities of mercy and grace and there to have our hearts melted. Remember that our sins are forgiven. Help us to pass our tests as they come. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen.